0: every distraction, anything that would try to steal the seed, anything that would try to hinder the Word of God, we bind it in the name of Jesus right now, back off away from the Word of God going forth and being everything God's called it to be right now. We bind it. And, Lord, we thank you for every person that's going to hear this. There's people are going to hear this years from now, people in other countries that listen to these sermons. Lord, I pray wherever people are driving down the road, listening to their iPod, their home, Wherever it is, Lord, I pray right now just a fresh anointing to come into their lives, your Holy Spirit to fill every place that around them all of a sudden the glory of God starts settling in. Lord, I pray give us all good fertile soil for the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God tonight. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, lock us in to where we give you our best year and our full attention. We get focused. We're able to comprehend. but we're able to, to keep our minds focused on what you're speaking. Lord, I pray that you would anoint our eyes and give us spiritual vision to see. Anoint our ears and give us spiritual ears to be able to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church. And Lord, I pray as these seeds of truth go out into good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, let them be watered by the Holy Spirit and cause those seeds of truth to take root and grow and bring forth a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, I pray even as I speak tonight, let the light of your truth shine forth that will dispel out any lies, deception, darkness from the evil one, any type of deception that's been there, pet doctrines, traditions of men, lies from the enemy. Lord, that that will be dispelled out and replaced with truth. And let your word be the hammer, Lord, that breaks to pieces the rocks, whether it's a hardened heart that's broken. Whatever it is, strongholds of the enemy, let your word go forth like a mighty hammer that shatters strongholds and as a mighty sword of the Lord that cuts away what needs to go. And Lord, your word, you said you promised in your word that it would go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do and that you're careful to watch over your word to perform it. So as we've prayed tonight, we come into agreement as a church. We believe, we thank you for hearing and answering this prayer right now and meeting every need right now. People are coming into a focus where the Holy Spirit can really speak to people. And Lord, I pray that tonight that it won't just be the Word, but also the Word going forth in a way, not just Logos, but it'll be Rhema. And Lord, it will go forth in a way that produces great faith in people. That's what I feel. Great faith. Lord, that it will impart faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word, but it's got to become Rhema. So Lord, let it be Rhema that goes into people and produces faith in the spirit in jesus name we pray we thank you for it now amen all right this is part eight i'm gonna talk about different things i'm gonna kind of move around tonight okay so i'm gonna talk about the michigan i'm gonna talk about the lamp stem i'm gonna talk about the power of the holy spirit and i'm gonna talk about personal convictions a little bit before we get off this this is a revival ministry. So there's unique issues in revival that are not in other places. Okay, There's a level of spiritual warfare in revival that takes place that doesn't take place everywhere. There's, a, there's things that go on in connection to the move of the Spirit of God that are unique to that move that you've got to be ready for, whether it's you're dealing with people, you're dealing with flesh, you're dealing with um, satanic attack, whatever it is. Just be under the mindset that Uh, Like, for example, the church in Ephesus was born in the fires of revival. So I've really studied that church. I've studied the book of Ephesians, because Paul specifically wrote that to a church that was birthed in the fires of revival. And he talked a lot in there about spiritual warfare. That's where a lot of the revelation in the New Testament comes, about the armor. So I'm just saying that there's things unique to revival. So in this series, I've been trying to deal with things in a way that would lay a foundation and prepare you for revival. We've got to have a new wineskin. By and large, the Gentile church has been stuck in a pattern that is not a biblical pattern. I want you think about it for a minute. Most ministries and churches across, the, I'm talking about all over the world. You can go to Africa, you can go throughout Europe, all over the world. Most churches, they come together and they have some kind of a routine that they do every week. And I'm not saying that the routine in and of itself is a bad thing. I'm not saying any, anything critical at all. I'm just saying that a lot of these routines, though, are not hosting the manifest presence of God. And with that, you're not seeing the fruit of the power of the Holy Spirit at work among the people. So we've got to ask ourselves, where are most ministries and churches missing it so that we could correct the problem? I believe that if we'll go back to the patterns that were laid out in the tabernacle and the priesthood, That God, when he first came, it's a law of first reference. When when Adam and Eve sinned, they fell. The first move of God back into humanity was he started moving in the life of Abraham and then into the nation of Israel. And what did he do? He wanted to create a dwelling place. Adam and Eve walked with God. Can you imagine that? Think about that for a minute. Every day, God would come down into the Garden of Eden and he would walk with Adam and Eve. And talk with them. That's what God wanted. He wanted fellowship. Adam and Eve sinned. And sin separated them from God. So God told Eve. It was through a prophetic. okay. God spoke and said, your seed will crush the serpent. He was prophesying about Christ. We know that. But the point is that God wanted to dwell with man. So he created the nation of Israel. And he gave them the tabernacle. Which the whole point of the tabernacle was to meet with God, to be in his presence. That his presence could be among his people, that he could speak to people once again. But there's a pattern. God's laid out a pattern. This is the law of first reference. Christ did not come to completely do away with the law, to take the Old Testament like a like you know, wadding it up like a piece of garbage and throwing it away. Jesus did not come for that reason. He came to fulfill it. So it went from being an earthly tabernacle in the desert to now we are the tabernacle or the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the patterns are still the same. And you'll see that as I go through it. We have to come through the blood of Jesus to get into the glory. And that's part of the problem I think where people are missing it in a lot of churches. They're neglecting the blood. And there's whole mainline denominations now that don't want to talk about the blood. Think about that. If you take the blood out of Christianity, you're not going to have Christianity anymore. The blood is what washes away your sins. You're, the blood is the covenant. And the blood is what gets you in the glory. So there's patterns. So what I've done is i broke down the pattern. So as you go into the tabernacle, it's created where the gate is at the east. So you have to turn away from the sun and go toward. And the reason why is because those people in the eastern cultures worship the sun god, Baal. And so that you had to turn your back on every other god and you had to go toward the god of Abraham. And the first thing you went through was the gate. The gate had the four colors. Remember the four Gospels. I'm not going to bog down on any of that. You go through the gate. Then you see the bronze altar, which is the cross and its salvation, the blood. Okay? Then you go past the bronze altar to the laver. It has to do with water baptism and the washing of the water of the Word, all of that. Now we're starting to move into the holy place so there were five pillars there it was a tent in the outer court it was lit up by natural sunlight, now we're getting outside of just the natural and we're moving into the supernatural because now you're leaving the outer court, the outer court smelt like death dried caked blood but when you got into the holy place it smelt like incense So I believe, this is my personal opinion, I haven't heard anybody preach on it, but I believe that first veil had the five pillars, the five-fold ministry, but you went through that first veil into the holy place. I believe that represents the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the reason why, there's multiple reasons, but one regarding the tabernacle was the priest who wore the blue tunic, and that blue tunic is the clothing of power, with the bells and pomegranates, the tongues, that clothing of power with tongues is what got them inside the holy place. Okay? I believe to really get into the holy place, you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to really get in and really benefit from the holy place. That's just my personal opinion. So people move from the outer court where they're seeing things in the natural. Now, it's like a baptism in the Holy Spirit. They're moving now into the holy place where there's the table of showbread I talked about last week with communion. There's the lampstand, and there's the altar of incense where they burned incense and worshipped God. And as they moved into this holy place, this is what I'm going to talk about today. The Michigan, I'm going to talk a little bit about the holy place. But the tabernacle itself was a tent. It wasn't very big, and had layers. That's the Michigan. Let me think about this for a moment. Let me read over some of this, and, and I'll get to some of the things. I'm almost getting ahead of myself with this, but... The Mishkin is translated tabernacle in Exodus 25.9. And I gave you the Strong's number to look it up. But Mishkin comes from the root word Shekinah. And this is where we get the word Shekinah from. So this is a dwelling place of God's glory. His manifest presence. I mean, it was the tabernacle was something that moved around. And I felt for a long time that, you know, my ministry has been one that's very tabernacle based, moving around but carrying the glory. And the tabernacle, when you look at it, let me talk about this Mishkin. It's the covering. I'm going to move pretty quick through some things because I don't want to dwell on things I'm just touching on. But you know when God created Adam and Eve, he took Eve from Adam's side, okay? And did you know the Bible says that God called them, both of them, he called them Adam. He, he saw them as one. It was after, after the fall that um, Adam named her Eve. And she began, of course, to be the, the, where life came from. But before the fall, God saw them. It says this in the Bible. Look at it. Up. God saw them as Adam. He saw them as one. So the important point here is that God is very much into spiritual covering. Eve was under Adam's covering and she was protected under that covering. But when she disobeyed Adam's authority and Adam told her, do not eat the fruit, when she disobeyed his authority and she came out from under his covering, that's when everything happened. If she would have just submitted to her husband like she's supposed to and not ate the fruit, we wouldn't be in this situation right now. Amen? But interesting, in Deuteronomy 27.20, when it talked about sexual sins, it said to not um, have sexual relations with your father's wife, which I'm not going to get into that. But it said, regarding the wife, it said the father's skirt. And I looked that up and here's what it said. The skirt is translated wings in the Hebrew. And wings refer many times to prayer shawls. Okay? God saw that husband and wife as one. And he saw, whenever he said, don't touch the, the man's skirt, he was referring to his wife. But it's interesting that he saw them as one. Because he saw her under his covering, under his authority, and they were one. God is wanting people to be under authority because there's a covering. I'm talking about the Mishkin. But underneath spiritual coverings in these last days, that's a big deal with God. And it's interesting because in the book, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about, it's a really deep passage because what it's talking about is, it's talking about the husband covering the wife. You know, remember it talks about, it's a shame for a man to have long hair, but a glory for the woman to have it. And it's talking about the husband covering the wife and her coming under his authority. But the last scripture in that says that the woman should have a sign of authority on her head because of the angel's. The only thing that could possibly mean is that she's protected from demonic attack because she's, she's under his authority. That's the only thing that can mean. Tell me something else it can mean. That's the only thing is that she's underneath his authority, the husband's authority. Therefore, she's protected from the fallen angels. Did everybody get that? So the point is that it's not just for women, but it's for all of us to be underneath authority and underneath covering. Um, There's, you know, what made Satan become Satan. He was Lucifer, a beautiful angel, but he got prideful and arrogant, and then he was rebellious. The more prideful people are, and the more rebellious they are, the more they are like Satan. That they're taking on his nature and becoming more and more like him. Jesus is humble, and he operated under authority. When he was told by his heavenly father, he said, the Father, do this, do that. Jesus said, I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. I don't speak anything unless I hear the Father speak it. So there had to be a great level of submission to authority that Jesus was operating under. And he was very humble. So that's number one. I want to talk about that, is being under cover. You're not always going to understand what's going on. But if you give in to fear and start trying to rebel against authority, you're only hurting yourself. And the pride there, just being humble and staying under that authority and being covered in these last days. I believe in the days that we're living, it's imperative that all of us are underneath a spiritual covering of some kind. Okay? There's protection in that. The second thing is you look at this tent. If you look at the picture, it's interesting because It's like they cut away part of the tent so that you could see inside of it. But I want you to see that there was a covering over the tent. Notice the boards that went all the way around it. Those boards were there to create that tent, and then there was coverings put over the boards. But there was 40 boards. 40 is always the number of testing. Did you know God is testing the world with his presence? Just like this right here. I'll come back to that in a moment. There was five pillars in the front as you went in. That represents the fivefold ministry. And there were eight pillars at the very end, the back end of it. Eight is the number of new beginnings. When Jesus comes back to the earth, there's going to be a new beginning. I'm going to talk about testing here in just a moment. The sand itself. i think about it. They, they picked up camp and they went everywhere. And wherever the tabernacle settled... That ground became holy ground. I remember when I went to Brownsville, some of you were with me, and they had that incredible revival from '95 to about 2003. There was at least 4 million people came through there. I would say, in my opinion, there was at least a million people that came to Christ, hundreds of thousands of people that were Christians, really sold out, got right with God, set on fire for God. It is hallowed ground. And I went there in, when was it, 2011 maybe when we went um, we went back there for a conference and there was maybe a dozen of us that went took a group And as we were there the very first night And I was there worshiping the Lord Lights were dim. They were really worshiping and praising God just getting into it. and I was there worshiping And I was remembering the revival because I've been there many times during the revival But as, as I was standing there on this holy ground All of a sudden I felt literally like a fire split up from the ground and shoot up my legs up to about my calves. I thought, my God, this, I mean, it's holy ground. There's a fire, there's a literal presence that can come into soil, into ground, into places. I remember feeling like a wind whip around. There was angelic activity in that place. I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. There was angelic activity there. And you could feel it. As I was worshiping, I felt a wind whip around. I knew there was the the movement of, of angels there. And it was interesting because wherever the tabernacle went... And they would set it up. That ground became holy ground, became hallowed. Now, think about this. In Numbers 5, there was a test. If a man felt that his wife had committed adultery and she was saying she didn't, there was a test. And he would take her to the priest at the tabernacle, and they would they, she would make a vow saying that she did not do it. And the priest would take some water and put sand from the tabernacle floor, sprinkle sand in it. And she would have to drink that. If she was guilty, it said that her stomach would swell, her thighs would waste away, and she came under a curse. But if she was innocent, it said that she would become fruitful and have children for her husband. She came under a blessing. Now, what I found interesting about all of that was this. God took the soil, the sand, from where that tabernacle was, that hallowed ground, and would have her drink that. Are you following me? There was something about the soil that became holy. Wherever God's presence settles, it becomes hallowed. Like on Mount Sinai, God settled over that mountain, and that mountain became holy ground. And God said, don't let anybody come up and touch this mountain, including a donkey or anybody else, or they're going to be killed, because it was hallowed. Here's what made up the Mishkin. Here's what I'm going to talk about with testing. They set up those boards. There was 20 on each side, eight and five. Anyway, they set up the boards in a rectangle, and then they put the Mishkin, the covering over the top of it. The first layer of that Mishkin was linen. It was, I believe, blue, purple, scarlet, all of that. But it had interwoven into it cherubim. That's the first layer over that tent. So as you... Went into the holy place. You had washed your hands and feet at the laver. And let me stop there for a moment. If people would do this. Think about. You know. The laver is God's word. How many people's lives could be spared from things? How many. How many in the ministry. How many leaders out there could be spared. From. From unnecessary falls. In the center. Whatever else. If they would follow this pattern of every day, washing in the laver, where they go before the Lord and they look at the mirror of His Word. Just the Ten Commandments. And they take a self-examination. Maybe they've got communion in hand, but before they go to the table, showbread, they're going to wash at the laver. So they examine themselves before they take communion and they pray, Lord, if there's any idols, any other gods, anything in my life that's more important than it should be, Show me so I can repent. Wash me in your blood. I want to be holy. This is the washing of the water of the word. It's it's examining yourself in the labor. Lord, if there's any area where I have used your name in vain or my mouth has been speaking things that shouldn't be speaking. Lord, if there's any area where I've been dishonoring to parents, if there's any area where there's been dishonesty, lying, stealing whatever just any dishonesty and people steal from god all t- i mean not only from withholding tithes that's stealing from god but also people take things sometimes just talking to my wife about people that steal things out of churches and stuff man i guess i was raised i mean it's one thing to take something from somebody else and you know you borrow something never give it back and steal but it's, it's one thing to do that you shouldn't do it it's a sin but in my opinion this is just scott boyd's opinion it takes a special kind of stupid to go to go into god's house and take something that belongs to god it's not somebody it's god's and you take it you know and you go out and steal whatever it is that's just my opinion i believe that that's a whole realm there that i'm anyway but is there any dishonesty And then you look at, Lord, has there been any adultery of the heart? Have I been looking with lust? Has there been sexual sins as far as looking? Anything that's not right, wash me. Is there anything with murder of the heart? That's hate. Do I have hatred? Do I have unforgiveness toward other people? Or covetousness? Have I been envious, greedy, materialistic? Think about that for a minute. If Christians would go to the labor daily, if ministers would go to the labor daily, you would not see the falls into sexual sin, the falls into misuse of money and other things. Why? Because they would have dealt with it at the labor. Is this making sense? So you examine yourself and get washed. You go into the holy place. Now you're taking communion. And because of the blood, now the glory starts coming, and you can really start moving in the glory realm and start moving in that holy place. And as you look all around, that first layer on that tent is what's making up the ceiling and the sides. Probably the boards were spaced apart, and you could see the cherubim. You could see the cherubim on the ceiling. You could see it uh, separating the holy place and the holy of holies. All that was there. (laughs) So all around you in the holy place is angelic activity. And where you have holy, hallowed ground, you have angelic activity. You don't know it, but I'm telling you, you have no idea how many angels are around right now that are listening to me preach here in this place. So there's angelic activity, there's an open heaven, there's angels ascending and descending. The second layer on top of that was black goat's hair, goat's skin. You know what that represents? That represents the sin nature. All of us have a sin nature. Even though we're born again, we are still got a sinful nature we got to die to daily. On top of that, goat skin was the uh, scarlet uh, ram skins dyed red. It represents the blood. Then on top of that was these plain badger skins, or some people believe it was like sea cow skins. Have you ever seen like a sea lion? You cannot imagine. Can you tell me an uglier skin to put over something? Okay, that is just an ugly, plain. So, here, picture this. you got the beautiful linen cherubim, then you've got the goat skin, the sin nature, then you've got the blood covering that, then you've got this plain, the top layers, the plain covering. That there's nothing attractive about that. There is nothing attractive about a sea lion's skin or some kind of a badger's skin. It's plain. This is what I was talking about with testing. See, individual people and the church, both, there's this beautiful work on the inside of us where we have Christ's DNA. But then you've also got the covering of the sin nature you've got to die to every day. But God's grace, you've also got a blood covering over you. But then also, you're still wrapped in this flesh like the badger skins. That's why Paul said that this glory is in earthen vessels. You're still wrapped in your plain skin. So people look at Christians, they look at Christianity, they look at those plain skins of a church, and they view Christianity as, as boring. They look at it like a bunch of rules. The, all they can see, because they're blinded to it, they can't see the glory. They can't see the reality of what Christianity really is, all they see is this bunch of rules, and they look at Christians, and all they can see is their humanity, those badger skins. But if they would ever humble themselves and come through the blood of Jesus and get born again, then they would be able to come into that holy place and be able to really see what Christianity's really like, okay? That it's an awesome experience, the most exciting life, an incredible thing. And in these last days, as we check ourselves at the laver and take communion, you know, David's mighty men ate the consecrated bread to have strength for the battle. I believe in these last days, the Bible says that in the last days, that Satan would try to wear out the saints. We're living in a time where the devil's trying to wear out the saints, and where the Bible says the devil came down to the earth, woe to the earth, because he knows his time is short. There's a great, epic, last-day battle that we're living in, And and literally, based on the Scriptures and Bible prophecy, the rise of the Antichrist could be very near. So here we are living in this time, and how many of us, we need strength for the battle. You're going to find that there's a table, even in the presence of your enemies, where your head can be anointed with fresh oil, your cup overflow, and you can find strength for the battle in the Lord's Supper. So once you go to that communion table, now you look to your left and there's the lampstand. The lampstand... Remember out in the outer court, the labor was without measure. So that's, you can have as much of the word of God as you want, okay? When you go in the holy place now, you're in the holy place, and now this lampstand is what lights up the holy place, nothing else. It would be dark if it wasn't for the lampstand. But the lampstand was without measure. So you can have as much of the Holy Spirit as you want. Jesus, it was said about Jesus, he had the spirit without measure how many would like to have the spirit without measure flowing in and through you so a lampstand was without measure you can have as much of the Holy Spirit as you hunger after and go after he the Bible says if you will draw near, near to him he will draw near to you and if you'll seek him with all your heart you will find him okay start seeking God with all your heart those are blessed are those that hunger thirst after righteousness they will be filled there's a hunger there's a passion there's a going after God or at that lampstand, represents the Holy Spirit and the activity of the Holy Spirit and His revelation. So in the holy place, now you move from outside sunlight, which is just natural, where you're seeing things pretty much like the world sees things. Now you move into the baptism in the Holy Spirit, tongues, the supernatural life, and now you're beginning to see things by spiritual revelation. The Bible says, as I talked about last week, don't forsake your first love, which was the Lord's Supper, because you would be in danger of losing your lampstand. What is the lampstand? The lampstand is the, a fresh anointing and revelation. It goes together. You get a fresh anointing, you spend time with the Holy Spirit, He gives you revelation. So the lampstand, let me just read over this without measure. It's made of pure gold. One chunk of gold beat out into a lampstand. The branches had these um, knobs and these blossoms and buds. Okay, So it was supposed to represent us bearing fruit. Okay, And it had seven branches. There's a lot about the number seven. It means perfection. And there was oil that would fill that lampstand. Every day, the priest would go in and dump fresh, new, oil. We need fresh oil every day. He would dump fresh oil into that, probably in the middle, and it would go down and fill those branches. And they would take the old Levitical garments, those white garments, as they got older, and they would take them and they would shred them. And they would twist them up and put them down in that lampstand, and that's what they used for a wick. A couple, couple things about this. If you count seven branches and you count the number of the knobs the buds, the blossoms, all of that it totaled 66 you know what's interesting about that number one, sinful man the number for sinful man is six but God was prophesying back through Moses that the number of books that we would have in the final Bible before Jesus comes would be 66 books in that Bible And it's interesting because it's done on a lampstand. So when you take the middle branch and then the three on the left, you have 39. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. And then when you take the three on the right, you have 27. And there's 27 books in the New Testament. So God was prophesying through the tabernacle that there would be 66 books in our Bible. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) But here it is. The lampstand speaks of the person... And the work of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the anointing. It speaks of revelation. And it speaks of the Rama word of God. The logos was at the laver. But now you're getting Rama at the lampstand. Are you seeing this? This is where revelation comes. And it's going to make more sense to you now when you understand some things that Jesus taught us. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He was really talking, in part, He was talking about the lampstand because Jesus is that middle part of the lampstand and we are the branches. And as long as we are connected to Him, the oil flows into Jesus and flows out to us. That's why Jesus used the example that the wise virgins had lamps and they had extra oil. He was talking about the lampstand. So the lampstand has to do with your personal prayer life. Every single day, they had to keep that fire going. It's, it's your responsibility and my responsibility. We keep the fire going. Leonard Ravenhill Hill used to say, God is an all-consuming fire. If God has set a fire in you, God's not going to die in you. So if you die spiritually, it's not God that died in you. There's a problem with you, amen, and a problem with me. So if I die spiritually, it's not because God's fire went out on its own. It's because I died spiritually. So every day the priest would go into that holy place and they would take and they would trim the black off of those old um, wicks and they would make sure there was plenty of oil to last through the night and they would make sure those things were lit. That is the wise virgins right there. The parable of the wise virgins, they had extra oil to last through the dark night as they were waiting on the bridegroom's coming. So here's the picture and type I want to give you before I move off this. The Levitical clothing. We are the Levites. We're the priests, okay? Remember I said they used them as wicks. The Levitical clothing is saturated with oil. We need to be saturated with oil. It was lit by the fire of the Holy Spirit. We need to be baptized in the fire of the Holy Spirit. And it glowed with the glory of heaven. We need to glow with the glory of heaven. That's why also I believe that if you were to go, it, however it happened in the upper room, people believe the Holy Spirit fell. They were actually around the temple area out in the streets. But however it went down, if you were to have been there and you saw those cloven tongues of fire, it would have been reminiscent of a lampstand that had little flames of fire over each branch. That all those people that were there had a cloven tongue of fire over their head. It was like a lampstand lit up. So the Holy Spirit, He brings the power, the powers of the age to come, which are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Talk about the lampstand. He brings revelation from God's word. Jesus taught us the Holy Spirit will teach you all the things that I've spoken to you. He will, He will remind it. He will remind you of what I've taught. He will help you to understand things that you couldn't understand before. See, people read the Bible. There's college professors that are atheists, God-haters. They mock God, all that. And they, they brag and say, I've read the Bible 12 times through. Just because they read it doesn't mean they understood anything about it. They may think they do, but you cannot understand spiritual things without the help of the Holy Spirit to do so. It's not possible. They may think they understand it, but they don't understand it. They're spiritually blind. It takes the Holy Spirit to illuminate that word to you. Will you really understand it for yourself? The Holy Spirit is a person. So let me ask you this. The early church, whenever they were confronted now with Gentiles being saved, they gathered together and prayed. Now there's an idea. What would happen nowadays if church leaders were confronted with something and they said, instead of us trying to run things like a business, why don't we ask God, That's a good idea. Why don't we ask God what He thinks we should do? And then whenever He speaks to us, we'll actually do what He says. So the early church, when they were confronted with the problem, now Gentiles are coming into the faith. They're uncircumcised. They have not been trained in the Torah. They don't understand the tabernacle. They don't understand the things we understand. They haven't read the prophets. How do we deal with these Gentiles that are now coming into the faith? Because obviously the Holy Spirit has accepted them... Because he's poured, and the Spirit of God is being poured out on them just like on us at the day of Pentecost. So now we've got to figure this problem. So they came together and they prayed. They said, Lord, what should we do? And they said this in Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit that we should not burden you except with, and they gave a list of rules. But they said it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. They asked the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what do you think we should do? Speak to us. What would happen today if mainstream Christianity around the world would start seeking for the direction of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, what should we do in this situation? Leonard Ravenhill was talking about a mainstream denomination before he died. He said the glory has left this denomination. He said across the board, 95 or more percent of the churches are dead spiritually. He said what they need to do in the headship is they need to... Release a clearing, clearing call throughout all of their denomination that next Sunday, we're not having church as usual. We're going to declare a fast. We're going to humble ourselves. We're going to get on our, our face. We're going to have a corporate prayer meeting across the nations of the world. We're going to ask God's forgiveness, and we're going to ask Him to let His glory come back. If they would have listened to Leonard Ravenhill, they would have the glory in their church. This is good, friend. That's why every generation, there had to be people that were like called out ones. That would not go with the norm. And just like we're reading about John Wesley and about to cover that in the cell group, he was just one of many. But he could not go, he could not function within the church structure the way it was in his generation. Just like all these other revivalists couldn't in their generation. He wanted to. He, he loved them. He, he wasn't being divisive. They just would not accept the move of God through his ministry. So he had to preach on the streets. People say, well, why did Wesley preach on the streets? Because he couldn't preach in the churches. It wasn't his choice, but the mainline churches and denominations of that generation would not accept his ministry. But his ministry was a Holy Ghost ministry that changed you know, England and, and America and, and many other. There were so many lives transformed, the Great Awakening. Here's the benefits now of praying in tongues. Why do we need the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the the speaking in tongues? Why do we need that prayer language? I'm going to tell you. Satan hates tongues. And he does everything he can to resist tongues. I'm telling you. The devil hates speaking in tongues. And ever since the day of Pentecost, he has stirred up people uh, to criticize tongues. And they don't mean to. Sometimes they cross the line and they're calling it demonic and... And it's the work of demons, and, and there's a possibility that they're blaspheming the Spirit. But let me tell you the power of speaking in tongues. Here we go. Number one, the Bible says that you utter mysteries. Great revelation comes in your life. First Corinthians 14, 2. You know where a lot of revelation comes to me for sermons and other things that God shows me is while I'm praying in tongues. Because the Holy Spirit is actually praying it through me, and then I'm getting like an interpretation. Number two, the Holy Spirit will pray through you the perfect will of God. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know, let alone weeks, months, years in advance, you don't even know what tomorrow holds. But the Holy Spirit, being God Almighty, He knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, down the road. He knows what you need to really pray about. So as you spend time praying in the Spirit and you say, Holy Spirit, I yield myself, come pray through me the will of God, He is praying through you the perfect will of God for your life, And your loved ones and whatever else that he's praying through you about your church the ministries that you're part of the harvest all that He's praying the perfect will of God and the Bible says when you pray according to the will of God, you know You have it. so as you're yielding yourself to the spirit He is praying through you the perfect will of God, which also helps you to stay in the center of God's will for your life number three It is a part of your armor We talk about the helmet the breastplate the sword the loins of girt about the truth and, the, and the, the shoes of peace and all of that. But what a lot of people don't realize is part of your armor is tongues. The Bible says to pray in the spirit on all occasions. It also sharpens your discernment. It helps you to get spiritually sensitive. <clears throat> what happens is, is your inner man is becoming stronger and you're beginning to see things spiritually that you didn't see before. It is sharpening your discernment. It's causing your spirit man to become much more sensitive and in tune with the Holy Spirit and what he's wanting to show you. It builds up your most holy faith. Did you know, Jude says, did you know that faith comes from your inner man? And sometimes people are going through stuff in their life and and it's so traumatic and they don't know how to pray. They don't know what to do. But if you'll pray in tongues, just let the Holy Spirit pray through you. He'll pray the perfect will of God. And he'll build up your faith on the inside to where when the time comes where you need a miracle, that faith is there for that miracle. It builds up that faith within you. The enemy cannot fully understand. I've, I have... Man, I tell you, when you're a preacher, those of you call to ministry, remember this. If you're touching on something that the devil does not want you to preach on, you're liable to catch some resistance. But this is one thing that there's been a couple of times I've caught resistance. Listen, the enemy... The Bible says that we speak in tongues of men and angels. Men, tongues of men, has to do with earthly dialects, like Chinese. I've heard stories where people have had a message in tongues in a meeting, and it was in a language, an earthly language, that there was a person in that meeting. I've heard more than one story about this. They understood that in their language, and they got saved because whatever the gospel or whatever was spoken through that word to them, Okay, I've heard that multiple stories about that, but when you're speaking in a heavenly language, and it is something Satan's kingdom dwells in darkness, they dwell in death, and it's dry. Remember those three things, Satan's demons traffic in darkness, death, and dryness. When you're dealing with a heavenly language, you're dealing with something that's coming from the realm of light is coming from heaven, is coming from God, and they're dwelling in darkness. But there's not... Let me put it this way. How many languages does God speak? How many people are on the planet? Somebody throw a figure. Seven billion or something. Okay, you know how many languages God speaks? Seven billion. Because He knows how to talk to you like nobody else. He knows how to understand you like nobody else. So how are we to know that your tongue is unique to you as an individual and nobody else speaks that? You see what I'm saying? It's a heavenly supernatural language that God understands. And I believe that God opens the ears of angels to understand what they need to understand, but I do not believe that demons understand this language. I don't. Because it's from the realm of light and they dwell in darkness. So that's a benefit to you because the enemy sometimes you don't want them to necessarily know every single thing you're always praying about all the time, okay? And sometimes the Holy Spirit's praying through you something and it just, and there's no satanic resistance. It goes straight to the throne, moves forward, that's the end. of it. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, you stay in the perfect will of God because the Holy Spirit prays through you and covers those things. Romans 8, 26, you're strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your inner man is being strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible says we've got to die to the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit helps you. I know sometimes when I've taken long road trips, that's just something I do when I drive. I pray a lot in the Spirit to myself. And um, my wife and I went out of town and drove a long way. And uh, she slept a lot. I drove a lot, okay? So. <laughs> but I wanted to. And so there's a lot of time of praying in the Spirit. It's hard to describe what you feel when you've had hours and hours and hours of that. It, it's, there's some kind of a supercharge and an incredible sensitivity there I'm just telling you just there's something so powerful so what else is the benefit also James 3:8 says, how can um, salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring So some people say, well you know I have a problem with my mouth if you pray in tongues, I believe God will salt that mouth and help change that mouth okay because how can salt water and fresh water come out of the same mouth God's going to change. I believe there's a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that takes place as you pray in the Spirit. Also, Isaiah 28, 11 through 12, refreshing. How many feel refreshed after you've prayed in the Spirit? There's a refreshing. And then finally, Jesus said, true worshipers will worship in the Spirit. I believe that that is, Jesus was talking about tongues, okay, worshiping in the Spirit. True worshipers will worship in Spirit and in truth. It comes from your spirits. Those are the benefits of praying in tongues. So the veil was ripped. When Jesus, his body was ripped, he hung on the cross, he gave his life. When he died, the veil in the temple was ripped once and for all. So now it's interesting because we're dealing now with an age and a time in this dispensation of the church age where we can move in and out of the Holy of Holies. There's not a veil there that we have to somehow miraculously figure out how to get beyond. Jesus ripped that thing. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship. And also an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle was set up. In its first room, this is the holy place, there was the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Now why in the world did the writer of Hebrews put this? Watch this. Behind the second curtain, the holy of holies, the most holy place, there was a golden altar of incense and a gold-covered ark. No, there wasn't. There was just the ark. So why did the writer of Hebrews put the, the, the altar of incense now in the Holy of Holies? I'll tell you why, because there's not a veil there anymore. And I'm not going to get into the, the altar of incense, because that's probably next week's sermon. But it has to do with worship. Okay. So what the writer of Hebrews was saying was, Worship is what moves you in and out of the holy place in the Holy of Holies. There's no veil. Worship and prayer is just moving you in and out of there. So through worship and prayer, we can get into that Holy of Holies. All right. The tabernacle of David is being rebuilt in our time. Amos nine eleven. I believe this ancient prophecy is being fulfilled in our generation. I believe that. It says this. In that day, I will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. This has to do with the incense of praise and worship, prayer and intercession. Well, David, they had the tabernacle rest in Shiloh, but David loved God's presence and he became king over Jerusalem. And he said, I've got to get the ark here in Jerusalem. I've got to have God's presence here. So you know the story. He went down there. He messed up the first time because he's of the tribe of Judah and he wasn't a Levite and he didn't know what he was doing. He goes down there and decides it would be a good idea to put it on an ox cart bad idea and so they began to take the ark into jerusalem we know the story uzzah died and now they had to put it into the place um, obed edom the hittite and his house prospered but that is david longed to have that glory there so he finally got the ark into jerusalem but they put it under a tent and david's tabernacle david's tent only had the ark in it But David set up praise and worship and prayer and intercession around that ark. And the Bible says that there'll come a time where the tabernacle of David is raised back up. And I believe that you're seeing that right now. In America, for example, this is just one of many places, but you see like IHOP, constant praise, worship, prayer, intercession. What is that? The tabernacle of David. David. Not only that, it's all over the world. I can't remember where it was, if it was Taiwan or somewhere. We were, my wife and I were watching it on CBN. But they were saying that there was this nation now that's really moving into 24-7 prayer. And I mean literally all the Christians in the nations are, or that nation are starting to gather and have 24-7 prayer. It's incredible. And so God is rebuilding the tabernacle of David in our generation with an emphasis on praise and worship, prayer and intercession again. That's hosting the glory. So this is the lampstand. The activity of the Holy Spirit. The move of the Holy Spirit. But the move of the Holy Spirit attracts, listen to this, the same light that will melt wax will harden clay. Remember that. Because when the Holy Spirit comes and He begins to move, And the light of truth now is being preached. The gifts are being in operation. Tongues are being released. Now the activity of the Holy Spirit is moving forth. People are falling down. People are shaking. People are crying. People are having encounters with God. Whatever supernatural things are going on. The same light that will soften some people. Some people will come into that atmosphere and their hearts will melt like wax. And they'll be humbled. And they'll cry and they'll want God's presence and they'll repent of their sins and they'll get right with God other people will be in that same atmosphere And it will harden their heart and they'll be so hardened now that they're mocking and blaspheming. They hate God They leave they don't want anything to do it the same light that goes forth Will soften some people and harden others Whenever the word the Lord came to Moses Moses' heart was being melted, but as Moses spoke that same word to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was getting harder and harder and harder. So, how are people going to respond to the great Holy Spirit? How are people going to respond to the gospel? How are they going to respond to the things of God? Are they going to humble themselves and receive from God? Or are they going to harden their hearts and rebel against God? So, I'm going to deal with personal convictions. Shift gears, and I'm going to close with personal convictions and about humility. All right, as I'm dealing now with a group of people that are in revival, okay? So I'm talking to a revival crowd, and I've been around revival crowds before. My spiritual DNA has come out of revival definitely powerfully touched by Brownsville Revival, uh, Rodney R. Brown, many other revivalists and ministries that God has powerfully touched my life. So that's my DNA. And I understand that, and I understand people that have been in revival. And this is what I've seen in revival. I have seen people, though, start moving into spiritual pride. And this is what I'm gonna talk about. I'm talking about spiritual pride. It's dangerous. Because while the glory of God is there, remember Satan at one time dwelled in the manifest presence of God, but he still got lifted up with pride and rebelled. So just because you're in the glory doesn't mean you're not going to get lifted up with pride. You've got to guard that. And, you know, this is, I'm just going to throw this out there, but these people I love and I bless them, this, this is a little bit of a peeve of mine right here. But you remember Elijah, whenever it was time for the rain to come. Elijah prophesied rain, but it was dead and dry. Elijah began to travail. He was in like a birthing position. He was interceding and travailing until that cloud the size of a man's hand came, remember? I've seen people, this is I'm talking about spiritual pride. Whenever it's time to intercede, to roll up your sleeves and fast and pray and plow. And Get out there and serve, and and really go after God. And you're breaking up this this hard, crusty ground, and you're you're really praying and fasting in the rain. You'll find that there's hardly anybody that wants to be there. handful of people want to do that. Out of all the people of God of that time, it was Elijah and his little servant. Okay, two. So you'll find that there's very few people want to do that. But when the rain comes and you get the breakthrough, now revivals here, all of a sudden you find that these people start trickling in around and they want to act like they're they're just a big part of it and, oh, we just look. Where were they whenever it was time to plow? And what I've seen, I've seen some spiritual pride, and there's people come to my mind, of course I won't say their names, but they go from place to place and they act like they're a part of it, but they've had nothing to do with it. They're only going in somebody else's showers that they prayed in and standing under that rain and then acting like they're a part of what happened. Do you hear what I'm saying? And my question to them is, well, where where were you when they were nothing in the eyes of the world? They were nothing in the eyes of the church. They were in a desert, and they were praying for rain. Where were you then? But they want to come after the fact and act like, oh, yeah, we're a big part of everything going on. I'm talking about spiritual pride. All right, so spiritual pride is deadly. Pride is deadly in general because it's so subtle. It's like bad breath. Usually the person that has it is the last to know, right? And somebody's got to tell them, hey, man, you need a mint. But a prideful person, they get mad when you tell them they need a mint. <laughs> All right? So let me read this. I want you please, to hear me. I'm going to read Romans 14. I want you to really listen to what I'm going to say, and I'm closing with this. I'm going to talk about spiritual pride and personal convictions, okay? Paul said to accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. There are some things that are settled in stone. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. There's just some things that's not debatable. Okay, you don't go out and kill somebody, it's wrong. Okay? But there are certain things that are disputable matters. Okay? Verse two One person's faith allows him to eat anything. He's talking about food sacrificed to idols. One person's faith allows him to eat anything. But another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Meaning that there was food that had been sacrificed to an idol. But Paul said, I can pray and all food is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. I can pray and believe and I can eat without any quarrel. Another person doesn't have that faith. And so they have to refrain. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Now that scripture right there, the one who's able to eat, don't judge the person who can't, and the person who cannot, don't judge the person who can Who are you to judge someone else's servants? To their own master's servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And there was a man that had I'm going to give an example here. He chewed tobacco for, man, many, many years. And when he stopped chewing tobacco, he became a Christian and repented of it, okay? When he stopped doing that, it was a temptation for him when he would chew gum and all that. It would remind him of chewing tobacco. He'd done it, I mean, for, you're looking at decades, friend. Right? I mean, a long time. So for him, chewing gum reminded him of it, and it, and it caused him to, to deal with it. And so he to him, he felt his personal conviction was he just didn't need to chew gum. Number one, nobody should judge that person for not chewing gum. That's his business. That's his prerogative. Okay? The wrong approach would be for somebody to say, look, man, that's stupid. Okay? Because let me tell you, to him it's not stupid. And God may have put that on his heart for a reason, and to him that's a big deal. Okay? It's not to you, but it was to him. And you don't need to try to tell somebody they're being stupid because they're not, number one. Number two... You don't need to go to them with some gum and try to get them to chew it because you could make them stumble and fall. So if you love that person, then you're going to respect their personal convictions. But here's the flip side. That person that's not chewing gum, though, this is a true story. He would, he would get on to other people that were chewing gum and act like they should not be doing it. All right. So now we're dealing with a whole other thing here of personal convictions. Don't try to cram your personal convictions on other people and don't look down on them because they're chewing gum. Because to them, there's no reason for them not to. Is this making sense? But I'm going to tell you, when you get into revival and you get into the glory, that is one of the biggest, please hear me, that's one of the biggest satanic attacks that there is in revival is spiritual pride. Because somebody gets a personal conviction because they, they need that personal conviction for them, whatever reason that is, to go deeper in Christ. But now they start looking down on other people that don't share that conviction. This is good preaching. You know it's good when it's quiet. That's, that's Those that preach, remember that, okay? So we need to make sure that we're not passing judgment and we're not a stumbling block to other people. (laughs) There's been a movement. Satan's been majorly attacking the church in these areas. Used to, years ago, there was a real distinction between especially Pentecostal churches and the world. There was a big distinction. People that were truly spirit-filled, living for God, you could tell. They dress different. They talk different. They act different. They were different than the world. Satan has been working very hard through this area of personal convictions to try to blur the lines. And now you have people that are always trying to get others to um, flirt with the line to see how far they can go before they end up in trouble with God listen I'm encouraging you as a preacher don't don't flirt with the line okay just go after God quit trying to see what you can get away with quit trying to dip your toes and see hmm, I'm gonna test this out there's there's goofy ministries out there that will tell people it's okay to cuss like a sailor no no it's not and they'll and they, they preach all kinds of goofy weird stuff now they're trying to get people to become more and more worldly. And then they'll use their defenses. Well it's personal convictions. So I'm going to deal with all this in this sermon. Okay. So here's the next point I want to make. How is your so called freedom. Affecting you spiritually. And affecting other people. Let me read it and I'll come back to that. One person will consider a day more sacred than Another. And Paul was talking about celebrating the Jewish feast days. You don't have to celebrate as a Gentile. And so Paul said, you can consider one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. Each of them, listen, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before the Lord's judgment seat. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. But therefore, let us stop passing judgment on others. Instead, make up your mind to not put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of another brother or sister. I am Now, remember that. I'm coming back to that. Do not put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of another brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But if, if, if anyone regards something as unclean for them, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is d- distressed because of what you eat... You are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone who Christ died for. Therefore, do not let what you know to be good, spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God. Alright. I'm going to give you a story to explain this. Don't cause someone else to stumble. By your so-called freedom. If you feel that you're free to do something, fine. If you can do it with faith, absolute faith, without any doubt that you know between you and God that it's right, fine. But if what you're doing would cause another person to stumble into sin, then you need to refrain from doing it because it's sin now, because you're hurting your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, you're causing them to fall. I'll give you an example. So another new thing is about the drinking. Some Christians think it's okay to drink or whatever. It's become a problem. I'm going to give you a true story. All right. There was a group of people that decided that even though they're Christians, it was okay to drink. So they they were out at a meal and they were drinking. There was a man. This is a true story. I know the preacher that told this story. I know this story. He said that um, there was a man that got saved under his ministry. This man was a major alcoholic. He got radically saved and delivered. I mean, he was set free. And his whole family had had major problems in that family because of his drinking. And they really had a problem with him. And he, and he had major relationship problems with his whole family because of the alcoholism. But now he had gotten saved. He got delivered from it. He quit drinking. He was now going to church. And now his family and him were reconciling. This is the process of what God was doing. So he's going to this church. He goes out to eat one night. He sees other people from the church. Some of them are drinking. And he walks by and says, man, you know, you you guys are drinking. it. Say, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. Come on, have a seat. True story. So the man sat down, had a drink. That was the beginning of the end. He fell off the wagon horribly, fell back into being an alcoholic, And now his family didn't want anything to do with him. And the Bible says a drunkard won't go to heaven. So, I mean, I don't know where he stands with God, but that's pretty serious. So, by their so-called freedom, they ruined a man's life and pretty much ruined somebody's family. So, were they acting in love by doing this? No. You have to be careful that your personal so-called freedom's or not a stumbling block to somebody else. You hear me? You say, well, I can do that. Fine. But you better be careful that you're not causing another person to stumble by your so-called freedom. Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it, it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Did you see that? It's wrong. It's wrong. It becomes wrong because now it's a stumbling block to other people. It is better to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So no longer are you just thinking about yourself. Now you're thinking about others. Isn't that love? Jesus laid out his life for others. Some people, they profess Christianity, but they are totally, completely, 100% selfish and all they ever think about is themselves and what they want, and they don't care at all how much it hurts other people. That's not the Christianity that I know. That's not the Jesus that I know. So whatever you believe about these things, I remember this, I want you to remember this, and I'm going to move on. Whatever you believe about these things, keep it between you and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself, By what he approves and whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not in faith. Whatever you feel like is your personal freedoms, keep it between you and God. Did y'all catch that? Keep it between you and God. Whatever is your personal freedom, you feel like you're free to do it. You've prayed about it. You feel within yourself you have faith to participate in whatever it is. And you feel between you and God that it's right and it's okay. But if you think that it would hurt somebody else, then you keep it between you and God and don't share it with that other person. So we all know that we're going from glory to glory, meaning that we're growing spiritually and spiritually changing. So some of the personal convictions you have right now will probably change one day because you're growing spiritually. Some people right now are hyper-spiritual. They're fearful, and so to them, just about everything's wrong. I mean, they're they're freaked out about everything. One day as they grow in the Lord, they're going to grow out of that. But right now, they can't do things with faith, and so they don't need to do them. Because if you can't do it with faith, it's wrong. Another person, maybe they're not sanctified enough yet. So they're doing things they don't need to be doing. But the Holy Spirit will get a hold of them. Pray for them. Don't judge them. Pray for them. They don't need your judgment. That's not going to help them. Pray, go home and say, Lord, do a work in their lives. Let your Holy Spirit touch them. Let the Holy Spirit convict them. And the Holy Spirit will deal with them. And they'll they'll go through a sanctifying process, okay? But don't pass judgment on others. You see somebody that you look back and here you are minding your own business and you see them and you know that they're being silly and ridiculous about something they're totally freaked out about, don't judge them. Right now they're just in fear and one day they'll grow out of that as their faith grows. Don't judge them, pray for them. Another person, you see them over here and they're doing stuff and you're thinking, dear Lord, they really need to quit doing that. Don't judge them, pray for them. But see, that's where spiritual pride comes in because you start feeling like you're superior to others and you look down on others. Okay? I'm warning you, friend, this is serious business. I have seen this in revival. Some of the greatest revivals over the last hundred years have taken place in the last decade or two okay? in America. Some of the most incredible revivals America's ever seen. And I've seen people that were in those revivals that now are full of spiritual pride. I've seen them with my eyes, and I've seen several of them. The dangers in revival is becoming spiritually prideful. Because you're experiencing things in God that's really powerful. But it's not because you're so super spiritual. It's because of the revival. So this means that down the road you're going to be giving up some things or changing some things, and that's okay. Number two, the danger of having counterfeit discernment. This is rooted in pride or fear. Stay humble. Don't develop a counterfeit discernment that's not from God. Number three, each of us are so unique that the Bible makes room for personal convictions. This is simply based on your personality, your calling, your spirituality, and ultimately what the Holy Spirit deems is best for you. And this can change over time. But the personal convictions, each of us are so unique that the Lord has made room in His kingdom for personal convictions. Do you see what I'm saying? There's certain people because of things they come out of they don't want to have anything to do. My wife, for example, came out of witchcraft. On She hates things, I mean, with a passion that other Christians be like, well, yeah, I don't like it or whatever, but she has a hatred for it. And there's a difference because of what she's come out of. There's other people that have come out of things, and because of what they come out of, they have a real deep hatred for it. They don't want anything to do with it. Their personal convictions are way over here. Nothing is going to get across this line in my life. And then somebody else is like, well, okay, but... To them, it's not the same. But we don't need to judge each other. This person that's got these strong convictions doesn't need to judge the one that doesn't and vice versa. Because then you're dealing now with spiritual pride. Because as you judge them, you're basically saying I'm better than you. Number five, do not have spiritual pride over others regarding personal convictions because in actual fact, think about this. They may be able to handle something that you cannot handle right now spiritually. And they may be further along spiritually than you. Did you ever think of that? That's why Paul said, I'm able to eat meat. Because I've prayed over and I have faith to do that. Eat the meat, sacrifice I have faith to do that. But somebody else might pass judgment on him. Is this making sense? And listen as I close, okay? Do not ever get someone to violate their conscience. If someone's conscience tells them to not do something, it may seem ridiculous to you, but do not try to get them to violate their conscience. Because if they do violate their conscience and they, they do something they feel is wrong, to them it's a sin. And you've actually caused them to sin. Don't try to get somebody to violate their conscience. If they cannot do it with faith in their conscience, have a clear conscience, then leave them alone and bless them. Okay, Just leave it alone. And really honor that in their life. Honor that. Say, you know, that's really awesome that you're going to stick with your convictions and your conscience. I, I honor that in you. I bless that in you. And the last thing is, if you, and regarding personal convictions, here's just some things. If you feel like that you don't know which is which way to go, if you're going to err, err on the side of righteousness. If you're looking at something and saying, I'm not sure about it, man, don't flirt with the line about, let's see what I can get away with over here. Let me see if I can dabble. No. just If you're you're not sure about something, just err on the side of righteousness. Amen? And this is the last thing, and I want to pray about this here on the Day of Atonement. Pat Robertson said something, and it actually got national criticism. Don't you love that? But he was right, of course. And He said that there was a lady that had asked about a divorce and she said that her husband had betrayed her, had an affair, and she was broken hearted and she had to, um, you know, get a divorce or whatever. And Pat said, you're free to do that and move on with your life. Now listen to what he said. He said, but listen, you as an individual, you forgive the husband and pray about Lord, is there anything that I did wrong that contributed to this, and forgive me for that? He said, you get everything right with God in your heart, in your life. Now, the news media got that, and they got irate. How could he tell anybody to not only forgive this person, but then to pray about what they did wrong when they had the affair? I'm going to tell you he's right, because that's the Bible. You forgive no matter what the betrayal is, no matter how bad it is, forgive them. But here's what I want to get to. Some people are still in bondage to some inner healing issues because even though they've made a decision to forgive other people, they've never humbled themselves down enough to say, Lord, whatever I did to contribute to this, forgive me. Are you hearing me? Somebody, maybe an individual... Was having sex outside of marriage, but then that person that they were sleeping with betrayed them, and they were so hurt by the betrayal that they're focused on that person that wronged them. I forgive them and all this, but in actual fact, if if they had been living according to the Bible and living right, they wouldn't have been sleeping with the person, and they wouldn't have gone through that level of a betrayal in the first place. So their sin contributed to their own inner healing issues. Do you see what I'm saying? Are there things in our lives that we've been hurt in life, but are there things in our lives that if we'd be honest about it, we'd say, you know what, as hurt, as broken, as devastated as I was, as traumatic as that was for me, I still want to humble myself down to the ground and ask the Lord, forgive me, Lord, for the things that I did that contributed to it. Some people have been rejected, but have you been a cocky person that caused rejection? Have you been somebody that was acted weird just be honest I mean some people they they act like real hyper spiritual and weird and then people don't know how to take them and they're like okay and then then they go home with their feelings hurt I've been rejected well I'm not saying that they should have rejected you but maybe the hyper spiritual weirdness if you hadn't acted like that it wouldn't have happened so instead of judging them so hard I can't believe they rejected me why not say Lord Forgive me for my part that contributed to this. They shouldn't have rejected me, but I shouldn't have been acting weird. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? There's some people in the sound of my voice that I know that you're going to find freedom if you'll do this. You will find freedom if you will humble yourself down and quit focusing on what other people did to you and say, Lord, I forgive them and let them go. That is is water on the bridge. It's gone. It's a chapter in my life now. I've closed. I want to now examine myself. Show me where I contributed to some of these issues, I want to forgive and also ask forgiveness for what I did that played into it. And when you do that, there's going to be a level of freedom that comes in. Some people have never truly forgiven others that have wronged. They really never have let it completely go. But did pride, did fearfulness, did rebellion, did anger play into your personal wounds that you have today? Did idols that were in your life, excuse me, idols that you had that you shouldn't have had in the first place, those idols now have been ripped out of your life, and it broke your heart and devastated you, but the truth is you shouldn't have had the idol in the first place. You see where I'm going with this? So because of the idolatry, now there's this traumatic wound. There was a woman that I'd met that I, I was supposed to pray with her, and she was telling me that um, she was talking about this great devastation in her life where she lost everything. And I could tell it was very devastating to her. And I've lost everything before, too. And i felt sorry for her. I understand where she's coming from. But I could tell by the way she was talking, though, that all that money and everything was a big idol in her life. It was a big idol. And that's why it was so painful when she lost it all. I mean, it, was, it, was a, it was like her whole world completely was destroyed. And it shouldn't have been on that level. But it was on that level because it was such an idol in her heart. And I began to talk to her about idolatry, making sure things are not too important in your life that shouldn't be, money or materialism. it was all She lost all these material things. But sometimes the idols that we've made of relationships, money, material things, whatever it is, um, that idol, now that it's ripped out of our lives, has created this devastation. But if we hadn't had the idol in the first place, it wouldn't have been that devastating. I hope this is making sense, my girlfriend. I know it's kind of deep. But that's what I want to do on the Day of Atonement. I want us to shut down recordings. And I want Brother Zach to put on some music. And I want, I want us to pray about this today. Is, has there been spiritual pride in your life where you've looked down on others for whatever reason? Has there been areas in your life where you've been hurt, wounded, but you feel that it was an injustice? And yes, it probably was. But what have you done that's contributed to it? What have you opened the door to? What's your part that you need to get under the blood? You know, there was a, a couple of examples I could give, but let's say there was a young lady that was really flirty and always dressed real seductive, and then she got raped. Now, the rape is a horrible thing. She should That should never happen to anybody. I'm not justifying that in any way at all. It's horrible. But maybe if she hadn't have been so flirty and seductive and putting herself out there like that, maybe it wouldn't have drawn that attention. You see where I'm coming from? So even though the person that raped her needs to go to jail, he needs to have, you know, judgment against him, and he's wrong, and it's a horrible thing, I'm talking about praying, Lord, what have I done that's contributed to this problem? Now this rape victim has this trauma in her life. But she's not going to truly be free until she forgives the person that raped her, and until she says, Lord, the things that I did that contributed to this, forgive me, wash me your blood, then she will find total freedom, complete freedom, and inner healing. Okay, So let's go ahead and just shut down any recordings or whatever and let's pray. And then I'm going to pray for people that want prayer before we go. Okay, Lord, I ask you by your Holy Spirit, based on this word today, Lord, that you would bring revelation by your Holy Spirit here in this holy, hallowed place. Bring revelation, Lord, regarding what it is that we need to get under the blood and deal with here of all days.